0: Alright. Great. Well, welcome again. Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to be exploring uh, questions that people have about God. And so, uh, hopefully this is a place where sceptics are welcome. And where together we can try and explore the big questions, the issues, the doubts. I don't know where you're coming from this morning. Maybe you feel like um, you're, you're still wrestling with this whole God question. Whether there's a God. Maybe you are calling yourself a Christian and you come to church but you're, you're, you still have these doubts and questions and that's fine, join the club, welcome um, If you, maybe you don't fall into any of those clubs but you at least have friends around you that are sceptics we live in a town where the vast majority of people don't express active belief in God and so At the very least, we need to listen to the questions and the the wrestlings and the doubts that people have as a way to understand them and understand ourselves and to see how does faith engage (laughs) with doubts. If you're like most of us and we have faith and doubts, questions and issues, then, then you're not alone. Frederick Buchner says whether your faith is, I love this quote, whether your faith is that there is a God or that there isn't a God, if you have doubts, if you, sorry, if you don't have any doubts, you are either kidding yourself or asleep. (laughs) Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. I love that. Paul Tillich said doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt is a key ingredient of faith. So so if you've got questions and and wrestling, that's okay. It's a good place to be because it means that you're thinking, you're engaging, you're wrestling. One of our youth a while ago asked this great question. I loved it so much. And she said, um, when I think about uh, this whole God thing, she says, what happens if one day someone comes up with a bunch of this new discovery or this scientific explanation that proves that there is no God, proves that Christianity is is true? What's going to happen to church? What's going to happen to youth groups? And I love that question because two reasons. One, it showed that this was a place of authenticity, that she was actually open about the questions and the struggles she had. And the second is, I love that there's a thinking there. There's thinking. It shows that like, we're not just blindly assuming, oh, this is the way it is, I'm just going to assume it. No, there's, there's a wrestling, there's an engaging what if... And so we're going to explore a bunch of uh, ideas today. I'm going to try and keep my time. Um, And you can I want to start by exploring three sort of big ideas, if you'll join with me. The first is, um, all belief is a mixture. As we try and make sense of God, all belief is a mixture of different ingredients. And we'll look at that in a second. The second is that it takes as much faith... To disbelieve in God as to believe in God. And finally, I want to try and argue that it takes more faith to disbelieve. That God makes more sense of the way things are. So if you came to to church this morning expecting a sermon out of a Bible passage and a bunch of life application, I'm sorry. But we're going to try and wrestle with some of these big questions instead. And as we do that, keep in mind, if you're a Christian, your sceptical friends. Keep in mind the people that have questions around you that you can... Think how they see things. If you are a sceptic, would you at least use this as an opportunity to try and see things as your Christian friends see things? So let's use this as an option, an opportunity to see things a bit different. Okay, point one. All belief is a mixture. How did you get your faith? I wonder. Maybe you think, oh, I, I looked at the evidence and it made sense. Uh, and maybe that's true. Often, um, secular people, people who don't believe in God, will say, I, "I, I, I can't believe because I, you, you have faith and that's okay, but I just have the facts." Well, that's not quite true because when we look at our belief, and when I say belief, let me preface that by saying, belief is a framework in which we make all of our life decisions. When you make a decision about what job you're going to get, who you marry. What, what, where you're going to live, what you're going to do, the big decisions, who you're friends with, what's right and wrong. All of that is belief. Belief is not optional. All of us have this framework in which we determine what's right and wrong, wrong what's good and bad, what makes up the good, the beautiful and the true. All of us have a belief, right? Can you see that? Yeah. And that belief is a mixture of intellectual, the arguments, the evidence, the reason, the, the facts of it. It's also a mixture of the personal and the social. The personal: our experiences, our story, our testimony. You might have a situation where it's a really difficult thing happens. Say, someone loses um, a family member, and two different people experiencing very similar situations might respond very different. One person, a person, they might look at that situation and go, "Oh my goodness, I need a God. I need someone that can help me through this." And person B, going through almost exactly the same thing, might go, if that happens, how can there be a God? There mustn't be a God. So our personal experience deeply shapes our faith. It's not just reason, it's also our stories. Can you see that? And not only that, it's our social experience. We tend to find convincing the beliefs of people we like, need, or want to fit in with. Studies have found a lot of the people that go to university and lose their faith often do so because the people they're surrounded with aren't Christian. And so <coughs> we, as humans, we naturally find most convincing the people that we want to like and the people that we want to be like. Can you see all belief, whether you're a Christian or a Buddhist or a Hindu or an atheist or a sceptic or anything, every single one of our belief systems is a mixture. And if that's the case it means that at the very least we need to be open that we don't have an objective view on reality. We have to be open to seeing things differently. And so if you're a skeptic can I invite you maybe your belief isn't just intellectual but maybe it's mixed with all the people that you want to like. Maybe if you're a Christian this gives us humility because your belief as much as I believe, and I'm a Christian, I believe that Christianity is true, but I have to have humility to be able to say, well, yes, but I'm also socially formed. I'm also formed by my own story. That gives us both humility and openness. But when we talk about social beliefs, when we're living in the West, as all of us are, I assume, we don't start with a blank slate. If you grow up in a country like Australia or America or the UK, you don't start with a blank slate. There are a bunch of ideas that are almost pushed on us. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, says this. I love this. He says, Many of the background beliefs that our culture presses on us about Christianity, which make it seem so implausible, are assumptions that are not presented to us explicitly as argument. Rather, we absorb them through the stories, through the themes of entertainment and social media. They just assume that they're the way things are. They're so strong that many Christian believers, perhaps secretly at first, find their faith becoming less and less real in their minds and hearts. And much of what we believe, therefore, is invisible to us. Because they're beliefs and we're swimming in them. Let me read out some of these. I've got them on the board. You might not be able to see them. My handwriting isn't super deep either. But... uh, other this, you might see that these things are so pervasive in the movies we watch, in the social media we look at, in the articles we read, in the, the way people talk. Things like, one, you don't need to believe in God to live a life of meaning, hope and satisfaction. Two, you become your truest self when you're true to your deepest desires and thre- dreams. Three, you should be free to live as you want as long as it doesn't hurt others. Four, you don't need to believe in God to have a basis for human rights and morality and values. Five, belief in God is declining. And Six, there's little or no evidence for the existence of God or the truth of Christianity. I reckon if I was to ask many of the people that call Coral home, one of these statements, just reworded into conversation, We would agree with it, because we're so immersed in a culture that assumes these things. And they seem, can seem, this is important, they seem like they're fact, but they're not. For instance, um, the first two are, you don't need to believe in God to live a life full of meaning. Or, you become your truest self when you follow your dreams. These are so deeply pervasive in all of our movies. Think about it, all of the Disney movies. What is it? Follow your heart. Or it's go chase after (laughs) your dreams. Just make your own (laughs) meaning. Things like that, right? Right? Yes. And yet, while the West has built itself on this as a belief, it's failing. Look, 80% of people in Australia call themselves, or say that they're lonely at some point or other. 40% 40% describe themselves as having anxiety. 30% have depression. That is a deeply broken cultural system. It means the things that we tell they will give us meaning aren't giving us meaning. So at the very least, we have to question those two. The next one, you should be free to live as you want as long as it doesn't hurt others. Well, what if the, the only person that hurts is yourself? What if it's actually creating a... Society of people that is so broken because we've lost the things that give us meaning and stability. And then what if there is actually a moral law? And if we've made ourselves as the greatest authority of what's right and wrong, that's deeply broken because when I look at myself, I realise so often, one, my decisions of what's right and wrong sways whichever way the wind blows, and two... When I look at my own choices, they're selfish and they're messed up. So I certainly have to question this. When I said we said we don't need to believe in God, as a basis for human rights. We'll get to that later on. Belief in God is declining. Common view. You hear a lot of people going, well, who believes in God anymore? I work in high school and you hear statements like this a lot. Who believes in God? Well, actually, while it looks like a lot of nominal Christians are falling off, People that come to church on Christmas and Easter, or just a surface level, assume uh, assume Christianity but don't actually follow it. Some people are dropping off, yes, but church attendance as a whole is actually increasing statistically. And not only that, for every one person that becomes a Christian in the West, 20 people become a Christian in the Northwest. So right around the world, Christianity is exploding. And that's not only Christianity. Islam, Buddhism, belief in God in general is exploding. So, definitely not true. Uh, There's little or no evidence for the existence of God. Well, let's look at that, which is point two. It takes as much faith to disbelieve as to believe in God. Now, let me summarise this just to say that when we believe these ideas, it makes it very hard for Christianity to seem plausible or believable. If I'm thinking that I can find meaning without God then why would I need to search for if there's a God or not? Why would I need to search for the truth? But when we see that this is deeply broken and has left society as a whole broken, Mm -hmm. then we need to question these sorts of beliefs, at the very least. Anyway, back back to point two. It takes as much faith to disbelieve as to believe. Um, There's a common saying, I hear it in the high school as well, I don't have enough faith to believe in God. It's this idea of, like, as if I have to swallow this big pill and it just can't get down my throat. It's this idea that faith is, 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 is hard to believe and it's like, I, I just can't believe that. Hang on. Everyone has faith. Everyone believes something. Remember, we looked. All belief is this framework with which we determine life choices. All of us believe something. Now... The basis for it takes as much faith to disbelieve as to believe is this. That all of the arguments proving there is no God fall flat. A lot of the psychologists in um, well-known universities, Harvard, um, Boston, Syracuse, have come out saying things that, at a philosophical level, you cannot disprove God. He's outside of the realm of proving. But in particular... There's four key arguments that a lot of people use. There's lots of other ones, and if you're interested in knowing more about this, I can recommend some books. Um, Tim Keller has a book called The Reason for God. Great book. Go have a look. Um, There's four arguments that a lot of people say, go look, slam dunk, there is no God. First one is senseless evil and suffering. Now, there's two levels to this. The first is uh, a personal level. The other is an intellectual level. If you're suffering with something at a personal level, then you're not really questioning the intellectual question. And the Bible's answer to that is not that, oh, here's an answer for suffering. I hope you accept it. It's Christmas. It's that God enters into our suffering. He knows what it is to suffer. And so if you're suffering, God knows too. There's a personal level.
1: But at an intellectual level, now
0: I preface with that because it's cold comfort if, if, if you are actually suffering. But at an intellectual level, the response to this. There's all this senseless evil and suffering. Surely that means there is no God. How can there be a God? The question is, how do you know it's senseless? How do you know it's senseless? If God is big enough to lay the blame for all of the suffering in the world at his feet, then surely is he not also big enough to to have a reason for it that we can't understand? There's a bigness to God that this is why the, the Bible goes on to say things like, as, as my ways are higher than your ways, so my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. God is, is as high as the heavens are above the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. If God is as strong as we claim him to be, then is he not also big enough to have reasons that our small mind can't comprehend in the suffering of the world? Now, that's shallow comfort. But it also, I guess, the, the flip side of this is, if there really is evil in the world, and, and I mean that, moral evil, something that is deeply wrong, if there really is that, then there must also be moral good. If at our deepest level, it isn't just that this is random coincidence that's happening in the universe, but that this is wrong. When we see murder, it's wrong. When we see injustice, it's wrong. If we see that, if there really is moral, spiritual evil, then there must also be moral, spiritual good. You can't use that as an argument against God. Okay, third one. Religious, second one, sorry I'm not going as fast as I thought. Religious people and violence. Christopher Hitchens makes a well-known argument saying, look across the centuries at all of the religious violence that has happened, crusades and jihad and all of these uh, big violent events. Look at the way that um, religion has caused so much violence. Surely that means that there is no God. Well, hang on for a second. Because in the 19th century, 20th century, I mean, Mao, Pol Pot, and Stalin, the largest atheist regimes that the world has known, these big evil empires, really, the largest uh, secular atheist regimes caused more human death and suffering than almost all of the religious violence in history combined. Millions upon millions of people have died through. These atheist regimes, at the very least, that doesn't prove anything about God or not. What does it say? It says that the human heart can twist any belief into violence. So that doesn't really work as a a proof against God. Another argument is, which God? There's so many different religions. How do I know which one is true? Which one? Well, uh, often that's accompanied by an illustration of an elephant and some blind men. And these blind men walk up to the elephant and they go, Elephant's are like trees, they're holding onto a leg and they're like this, they're, they're strong and sturdy. Another one, blind man goes up to the town and says, elephants are like rope. Uh, another one comes up to the ear and says, elephants are like banana leaves, they're big and flat. And it's the idea is saying, well, these blind men all saw part of the picture but they didn't see the whole elephant. Makes sense at a surface level. Until you think um, uh, a missionary to India, whose name, I just forgot. Um, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, yeah, Leslie, Leslie Newbegin Hey, normally we come after the sermon is finished. I'm, uh, oh. um, Leslie Newbigin, uh looked at that illustration and he said, hang on, if you claim to say that well, all of these different religions have part of the picture but they don't see the whole amount, you're claiming to see what no one else can see. What a position of hypocrisy. You're saying no one else has this ultimate truth. That's an ultimate truth claim. It's claiming to be the very thing that you said no one else can have. What arrogance. And in fact, really, all it's saying is that these great religions of which thousands and millions of people over centuries have wrestled with and have tried to engage with and ask the deep questions, minds far greater than you and I, have wrestled with this, and you're saying that because you see that all these religions fit together, that, that, that they all just, somehow they've got to fit together because I see the big picture. Hang on a second. I can't see the big picture. It's, it's claiming the very thing that you said no one can claim. And finally, the last one, I've had this one in the high school. Prove that there is a God. You know what, if the burden of proof isn't on me who doesn't believe in God to, to prove you. You've got to prove to me that there is a God. An example of this is um, in the 1950s, uh, the Russians, the USSR, sent the first man into space, uh, Yuri Gagarin, I think his name was, and uh, when they sent him up into space, the, um, the Russian USSR president, or I don't know what <laughs> um, him, uh, came out saying, look, we sent a man into space, And he came back. He went into the heavens and he didn't see a God. And C.S. Lewis responded in an article by saying, If God really is who he says he is, then he is not something that you can put in a test, tube and test, and prove in a lab. He's not something that you can wrestle with and prove or disprove like some created rock or plant. If we can relate to God at all, it's the way that Hamlet relates to Shakespeare. Like the character in a story relates to the author. The only way Hamlet can know anything of Shakespeare is if Shakespeare chooses to reveal himself. Can you see? He can't know anything about the author. It's a a different realm completely. So all of this is to say, all of the arguments proved against God have compelling reasons that point against them, which tells us it takes as much faith. It doesn't say that there is a God or there isn't. All it says is that they both take faith. You can't prove that there is no God, probably in the same way that you can't prove that there is a God. It takes faith. And if it both takes faith, let me bring this to my third point, God makes more sense, let me um, assert, of the way things are, it takes more faith to disbelieve than to believe. Are you with me? Yes. We're awake. We're not falling asleep. Hopefully, the coffee is starting to kick in. In other words, when we look at the world and we see the way things are, it makes more sense. We're trying to try and assert that. First point: fine-tuning of the universe. Francis Collins, a Nobel Prize-winning a uh, molecular biologist, a scientist, who, who started the Human Genome Project. He uh, looked at the way that DNA works and, and he looked at the fine-tuning of the universe and he said, when we look at the way that the universe is so fine-tuned for life, everything works together, everything is just exactly right, it points to the fact that it was made that way. When we look at our gravity, for instance, it was out a millionth of a millionth of a percent. If the smallest amount of adjustment was made, life wouldn't be able to survive. Now, it could have just randomly happened like that. But the chances of that are so small. Um, A a mathematician trained in Oxford called John Lennox said the chances are 1%. Uh, to the power, of one chance in 10 to the power of 370. That's not one in a thousand or one in a million. That's one in like a number that's seven pages long. Incredibly unlikely that this happened on its own. Doesn't mean that it can't happen, but it means that it makes more sense that the universe is the way it is if it was made by God. And I think we see that, don't we? When we look around at the universe, it looks so made. This Francis Collins, who worked on the DNA, also looked at how... When we have a look at our DNA, in a single-cell DNA, if we were to, to pull it out, it would be a strand of, of cells about two to three metres long in a human cell. And each of these parts, if you were to cut it and change it around, would be, it wouldn't make sense. It's, exa- it's a language. It's a really long word, in other sense. And when you piece this all together, it makes humanity. It's the code to life. But when we have a language inside of us, it points to the fact that someone wrote the language. That that same uh, John Lennox, as I said before, uh, he has this illustration. If you were walking along a beach and you saw a word in the sand, "save me" or I don't know, "go" on, we'll "dig here" or something like that. And um, you came across this word, you wouldn't go, wow, the waves are making really interesting patterns today. <laughs> you would go, no, a mind wrote it. Someone wrote it. A mind had to write it because it's intelligent. It makes sense. Now, maybe our DNA just happened to come that way, and that's possible. But for me, it makes so much more sense that if inside of us is a word, doesn't that fit with the worldview of a God who, when he Spoke worlds into being said let there be and with words formed life itself doesn't it make sense that 2,000 years before they discovered DNA God would say that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us it makes sense in a worldview where 2,000 years before DNA God would speak and he would just describe as as the author and perfecter of things if that's the way it is it doesn't prove anything but it makes sense that there is a God moving on when we look at human rights I think when we look at each other we assume that Melbourne for instance has more value than a rock (laughs) we assume that yes I much more value we we very much appreciate you (laughs) Melbourne humans have value we look at each other and we feel human rights intrinsically I look at Melvin and Bella and David and these people, they're, 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 they have infinite and intrinsic value and rights because they're made in the image of God. Now, if we were the result of random chance, which we could be, it's very hard to get that humans have any more right value than a rock or any more value than anything else or any other form of life. You can, you can get it. It doesn't mean that that you can't establish that there's human rights. And it doesn't mean that people who don't believe in God believe that any less. I'm not saying that at all. But belief in God makes sense of the fact that we deeply feel inside, which is that humans have rights. There's something right about justice and equality and, and, and dignity and mercy. We feel that. It's an argument to say, God makes more sense of the way things are. And finally... Let me finish by pointing to Jesus. More stories have been written about this man Jesus than any other. More books have been sold, more songs sung to, more more plays written of, more nations have been changed by, more parts of history determined the course of by this man Jesus. Time magazine named him as the most persistent symbol of love and purity in the world. He is described with matchless detail of this character that has no match. This man who walked around opening blind eyes, opening deaf ears. This man who we look at and he just doesn't seem to compare to anyone else. And he goes on to make this extraordinary claim that he is God with us. Now, if there is no God, Jesus was either a lunatic or a liar, which he could be. But for me, it makes more sense the two billion people in the world today claim allegiance to this man, many of whom claim that their lives have been radically changed by this same person. That makes sense to me, that, there was, that his claim really is who he says he is. I, I don't know about you, but when I look at this man who had such compassion, loved the people that, that everyone else thought God couldn't possibly love, he had this off-the-wall teaching like, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you and bless those who mistreat you. And he modeled it, he showed it. When we look at that, it points to me that Jesus really is who he says he is. And it leaves us with only three options either he was a liar, or a lunatic, or he was God. Now, when I look at all these things, it makes more sense to believe in God than to disbelieve. It doesn't mean that you can't disbelieve, but it makes sense. Now, what does all this mean? Point one was all belief is a mixture. If you're here in church and you're a sceptic this morning, you're still wrestling with where this all fits in, can I invite you to see that your beliefs are as mixtured as mine? The way you see things are determined by your friends and your circles and, your, and everything else. And can you see that as an invitation to see God afresh? Can you at least use this as an invitation to look at the reasons afresh? If you're a Christian, can you use this as an invitation to humility? As we discuss God with others, our faith is a mixture of things. So that's point one. Point two, it takes as much faith to believe in God as to disbelieve. If you're not a Christian, can you see that pop, contrary to popular belief, you can't disprove God. You can't. It's, it's, uh, people have tried for 2,000 years plus to try and disprove the idea of God. And smarter minds than me um, have tried to do that. Um, if we look at that, That means if we can't disprove God and you continue to live as if there is no God, then what you're doing is taking your life in your hands. Maybe there is a God or maybe there isn't, but you're taking your life in your hands. Can you see that? If you're a Christian, this is an invitation for confidence. That the same faith that it takes to believe in God is also the same faith that people who challenge your belief in God have. They have faith. And it gives you confidence that... that, it's not just a fairy tale, but we have reasons. And point three, God makes more sense. If you're not a Christian, can you see that it takes more faith to disbelieve than to believe? Can you see that if you're exploring faith, you're not being asked to leave your brains at the door? That there is reasoning and intelligence and, 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 a, and an argument and an intellect behind this. This is not just blind faith. This is, this is trying to make sense of the way things are. Can you see you're not being asked to leave your brains at the door? If you're a Christian, this should give you assurance. Hebrews says we have this hope as an anchor for our soul. To believe in God is to believe a firm foundation that the Bible is built on. Now, it doesn't start here. There's 100,000 other questions. And there's mystery in all this. And it's good because if God could fit in my little box, He wouldn't be God and he wouldn't be worth believing. But we start with a firm foundation. So, as I finish, if you've come with questions, this says nothing about what God is like or who he is. And we could, that's a whole other sermon, we could go on to see a God who would lay himself down for love, who would give us hope and life and a future, who would give us promises of never leaving us or forsaking us, who would see you and see us as we really are broken and yet see us willing to die for. That's a God that I want to believe in. Would you consider? Let's pray. Father, as we gather this morning... Sometimes we have a whole lot of questions, a whole lot of wrestling. Thank you, Lord, that that's, you're okay with that. God, as we wrestle, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us. Thank you that just like an author cannot be known by his character unless he writes himself into the story. Father, would you show us how you've written yourself into the story of the You made yourself human. Thank you that you don't ask us to leave our brains at the door. But you show us all these reasons and these these things that make sense. Lord, for those who are searching here this morning, would you be with them and reveal yourself to them? And to those of us who are are Christians and have faith, would you give us a sense of the assurance and the confidence that our faith gives us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.